Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's word. We've been looking at Ephesians passage by passage, and this passage, Paul does a lot of first person, so what I want to do with this message is just give you a sense of uh, how personal this was to Paul, and we'll establish two angles of approach uh, for our takeaways from this passage, then we'll go right into communion from that. So as you're looking at Ephesians 3, 1 to 13, just let your eye uh, fall through the verses here and notice Uh, This is kind of like Paul's personnel file uh, in the employ of God as the one who's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which uh, in the scripture's way of looking at the world, there's uh, Jews and there's everybody else, and everybody else are are Gentiles, all the ethnos, all the nations. And so as you're looking at the passage, Paul's emphasis on the gospel coming personally to him, verse 3, what God revealed to him. Verse 4, his gospel insight. Verse 7, his being a minister to the Gentiles, though he considered himself least among all the saints, as he puts it in verse 8. And you want a literal rendering, it's leastest of all. And then he says, verse 13, don't lose heart over my imprisonment. And verse 1 tells us that he is indeed a prisoner. He's in a Roman cell writing this letter to the Ephesians. So um, what are a couple of angles for us to take? Just notice that, that this passage is, is very personal to Paul and he's talking about his ministry, but it's his ministry to us. I mean, most of us in the room, if not all of us, are from Gentile heritage of, of some stripe. And so Paul is uh, our apostle affectionately and that uh, God chose this guy who had been a rip-roaring Pharisee of Pharisees and a guy who had even persecuted the church in its infancy. Book of Acts tells us that. What's this guy doing? Bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to our ancestors who then passed it all the way down, missionaries going to our ancestors, et cetera. And here we are sitting here today believing in the Lord Jesus. Well, he, he wondered the same thing. Indeed, what was he doing being the one 
who Jesus had transformed. So a couple of angles I think that we can take from this. First, I want us to consider how the gospel sustains our wonder. Paul never got over the wonder of who Jesus was to him. And wonder and mystery are are words that are closely related. And we get the word mystery a lot in our text. So that's what we'll talk about first, how the gospel sustains our wonder. And then second, how the church displays God's wisdom. You've got the word wisdom in verse 10, just lifting that out and building around it. So first we'll look at how the gospel sustains our wonder. Then we'll look at how the church displays God's wisdom. So we've got wonder and wisdom. Wonder comes from knowing the unsearchable riches of Christ, that wonderful phrase that we've got in verse 8. It's not the first time in Ephesians Paul's been so superlative, but in verse 8 we've got make known to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then back in chapter 1, verse 19, we had the immeasurable greatness of his power to those who believe. So Paul is at his superlative best in Ephesians. He's not putting on. This is uh, genuinely how he's been made to see things. It's not even about feelings, though Paul had the feels, you know. But it's about how he sees, how he sees Jesus in the center of everything that God is doing And it's not just global, it's not just universal, it's cosmic. We get that from this passage. And we've gotten it already from some other passages before here in Ephesians, but we're still looking at these realities that are meant to encourage us. So wonder, how the gospel sustains our wonder, wonder comes from knowing the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then wisdom, how the church displays God's wisdom. Wisdom is about becoming what we know. We'll talk about that when we get to that second point. But first point here, how the gospel sustains our wonder. I mentioned that uh, wonder and mystery uh, are sort of related terms here. And, and how, how am I getting that? Well, if, you're, if your eye is looking at the passage, just trying to take the passage in as a whole, mystery is a word used four times. And when you're studying scripture, reading scripture, always look for things repeated because there's emphasis there. And mystery is in verses 3 and 4. It's in verse 6. It's in verse 9. And mystery, as Paul uses this word, means something people don't know unless or until God reveals it to us. So it's something that's in the counsels of God. There may be clues, and indeed there are clues all through the Old Testament, that the Jewish nation was set aside for the nations to know God through the testimony of, his, uh, of the people, he, the ethnic people he called to himself through Abraham, Moses. But this uh, mystery, something we don't know until God reveals it. In fact, he uses the term reveal in verse 3. He says the mystery, verse 3, was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, and what God revealed to me, I've revealed to you and to all the other churches that he was writing to, ministering to, and to millions of uh, Gentiles ever since, and millions uh, beyond. Millions and millions. So mystery is something we don't know until God reveals it. Wisdom, again, uh, I'll get to that later, as I mentioned, is about becoming what we know. We can't become unless God first reveals but uh, this word mystery, out of which we're, we're thinking about the wonder of the gospel, you know, we have a problem with the word mystery. 
And the problem is, we don't tend to think of the gospel when we think of mystery. When we think of mystery, we think of masterpiece theater. <laughs> we think of Sherlock Holmes. We may even think of Scooby-Doo, you know, and the mysterious case of the playground ghost, you know, and they remove the mask at the end. <gasps> it's Principal Jones. Yeah, and it would have worked if one of you meddlesome kids, you know. So not only does mystery make us think of stuff like that, uh, but when Paul says, look what he says in verse 6, the mystery is, and we already know it, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jews, members of the same body with Jews in the church, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is old knowledge to us, I mean, especially those of us who grow up in church. We already know this. Or look at verse 9, another occurrence of the word mystery. Verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And we see plan there and we think, oh yeah, yeah, plan of salvation. That's what we think. And we kind of shrug. I mean, we know the plan of salvation. No mystery. There's no mystery here. I had a guy uh, approach me after I taught a downline class. I teach downline every year. A variety of things, and I believe we were teaching the life of David just a couple of years ago. And um, I said in my presentation, you know, the Goliath story and the Bathsheba story, these stories from David's life, we know these stories very well. And he came up to me afterwards and he goes, You know what? I don't know these stories. And he wasn't being critical, he was a new believer, he was brand new to the faith. God had radically converted this guy, and he could, he wanted me to know he could not get enough of biblical narrative. It was like, where has this been all my life? And how can Christians keep this to themselves? It was amazing. The riches of Christ were rich to him. This guy still had wonder. May that never leave him. A lot of us lose the wonder. We do. The old Greek philosopher Plato, you know, sort of the... the the beginning philosopher of all the philosophers. Plato said that all philosophy begins in wonder. All philosophy begins in wonder. And then centuries after him, a guy named Francis Bacon, an Englishman who was the father of the scientific method, said, yeah, Plato was right. All philosophy does begin in wonder. But Bacon said, wonder dies with knowledge. We think we know the Bible, a lot of us. And we do. We know the Bible. We know things about the Bible. Even to just know things about the Bible is better than most of what you'd find on the street in American cities of biblical knowledge. The, the, the biblical illiteracy of America is well documented. So here we are in the church. We know the Bible. We open a Bible or we locate it electronically and we follow along. But do we know the main thing the Bible gives us? The main thing the Bible gives us is the gospel. The main thing the Bible is here to keep us oriented to is the unsearchable riches of Christ, to put it in the terms of verse 8. And so what if then the Bible no longer speaks to us because we don't read it? Or, you know, we won't even listen to it on an app. <laughs> do you know how many Bible apps there are? All you got to do is open phone, press app, and listen. I gave my youngest son an app, comes out of New Zealand, and he can listen to a New Zealand person read him the scripture for a minute and a half. Just start there, buddy. You know? I mean, you got apps. You can listen to James Earl Jones will read you the King James Version of the Bible on the Pray app. 
Darth Vader himself, who finds your lack of faith disturbing, right? So if we become biblically poor, if the illiteracy that's supposedly out there beyond the church is actually in here among the church, we become gospel poor. And being gospel poor, we become bored with church. And we blame church for that, even though we're doing very little, perhaps, to prepare ourselves for worship. We've made this about ourselves, what we want and don't want. We need something to excite us, we think. And we stay riveted thereby to the controversies of our day, and we tune in to lovers of controversy political lovers of controversy, theological lovers of controversy, pastors and late night YouTube preachers who have these axes to grind and like to turn you against your pastor because they fill our tank. We think we need excitement and they're ready to give it. One evangelical leader recently said, and I think this is spot on, most of us know the plan of salvation, but we do not know the gospel anymore. Now, don't get down on ourselves hearing that. We can be recaptured by the wonder of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, that phrase comes from verse 8. But if we're going to be recaptured by the wonder, we're going to have to deal with some things. We're going to have to deal with how easily captivated we are by lesser loves and lesser allegiances, how people who should have never captured our heart have. I was emailing with a pastor recently. I was introduced to this pastor through uh, David and Jenny Williams. Remember David and Jenny Williams were missionaries of our church. They moved to Southern California. And David called me uh, a few weeks ago and just said, hey, man, let's catch up. And he said, I was having coffee with my pastor out here. And this was Alex and Amy Galloway's pastor before he was David and Jenny Williams' pastor. And he said, yeah, you know, this, my pastor was down. He was discouraged. People were leaving and felt like people were turning on him and he said, man, I, can I connect you two guys? And I said, sure. And so he sent this email and we're going back and forth. And one of the things my new California pastor friend said in an email, who would have ever thought telling Christians to place their allegiance wholly in Jesus would be so upsetting to them? If we're going to be recaptured by the wonder of our gospel, and that is what lights the fire and nothing else, if we're going to be captured by the unsearchable riches of Christ, the gospel has to clear out lesser loves and lesser allegiances. And not only that, it has to become bigger than our fears and our worries. I read about a man who kept track of his fears for a season. He did his best to harness everything that he was afraid of, and he put them in thirds, and he realized that one-third of his fears was over things that never materialized. He was literally afraid of nothing. And he estimated that one-third of his fears were, were things he heard or this is going to happen or these people are getting ready to do this. And, and he was scared. And, and then he realized later down the road, none of that even came about. He said another third of his uh, fears were um, things beyond his control, wouldn't do to worry about them anyway. If they happened, he couldn't control them. All he could do is respond. And then he said, um, 
the final third of his fears were worthy concerns. That seems about right to me. I think that's realistic. Where fear and worry are heavy, two-thirds of your energies and attention absorbed into them, the gospel isn't sustaining you. And your relationship with the Lord will probably lack the quality of wonder. You read a phrase like verse 8 that I keep going back to, the unsearchable riches of Christ, or a phrase like I mentioned earlier, chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power to those who believe, and it, the match doesn't light. And yet we're, we're churched. We're the churched ones. What happened to us? We lost the wonder. And wonder, again, it's not about working up your feelings. There's feelings involved. I'm not saying there aren't. We're, we're, we're far more emotional people than we are thinking people, which is no insult to people. It's just the reality. We're, we're emotive beings. We, we feel. And, and even our thinking is not some, you know, Spock kind of, uh, kind of reality for us. But wonder is about seeing it's about having your sight lines restored and, and seeing everything that God has promised to be for us in Christ in center view. And maybe what's happened to our sight lines is similar to what happened to the Pharisees of old. I think of them in this context because, as I said at the very beginning, the man who wrote this beautiful passage, these 13 verses, and the next passage is, is beautiful as well. The chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 is a passage I pray for my kids. And so I, I live in that passage that we're going to get to next, uh, next time. And the guy who wrote this was a, was a Pharisee and even persecuted the church before God turned him. I've given this illustration to you before. Good illustrations are like songs, you know, good songs. You ought to, you ought to be able to hear them again. And, and profit from them again. But what happened to the Pharisees, to whom Paul once belonged, and the Pharisees had a gospel, a glorious gospel that the Jewish nation had been set aside in the, in the plan and purpose of God to bless the nations. They saw this in their Old Testament, but they, they didn't look at it. What happened to the Pharisees can happen to us. Here's what happened to them. I want you to picture that you're staying in a home with floor-to-ceiling windows which look out onto a panoramic view of a majestic mountain range. Now, it's easy for me to think this because uh, my parents, uh, for a long time, had a vacation home in Gatlinburg, uh, the Greenbrier side of the park, and off their deck was Mount Leconte which is one of the highest points in the Smokies. It's just a, just a marvelous view. And I've got a friend uh, in Park City uh, I've stayed with, and uh, he's got these floor-to-ceiling windows looking out over 20 acres of the Utah mountains. You can see two uh, ski slopes uh, back in the background. Just, just amazing when you, when you wake up in the morning in his house. So the Smokies, the Rockies, whichever mountain range you prefer, you know, picture them, wooded hills or rocky hills, however you like it. Just don't think of Memphis in this illustration because we're 100 feet above sea level, I think, if that. Um, let's say a place like that is yours. 
such a great view through your windows. But then you begin to notice windows get dirty, right? There's spider webs out on the windows. So you take a broom and you go out and you knock off the spider webs and you take some Windex and, and you, you clean the windows. Uh, your back is to the majestic mountains now as you do that. And a couple days later after a rainstorm, you notice the windows are streaked. So you clean again. The spiders regroup and rebuild in defiance of you. Some children come over and they love to look and they get their fingerprints and nose prints all over. One of them had a peanut butter sandwich and it's all the way down the, uh, the window. Now you're cleaning the inside of the windows, focused entirely on the glass itself, not the view through it. You start giving more and more time to cleaning those windows. You order more potent cleaning solutions. You start becoming an expert in what, you know, what's, the, what's the ammonia content of this particular thing. And Amazon has you know, five reviews for this one and four and a half. And you wonder, what's the difference really? I want to know, you know. And you get these fancy squeegees. You tell yourself the view outside is too, you know, too great for the windows to be anything less than pristine but you spend more time looking at the windows and looking for what's on the windows than you take looking through them. You no longer see through them. You've become a Pharisee. Pharisees lost the wonder of their gospel, which was, again, that God had chosen the Jewish nation to bless the world. But by the time of Jesus, Phariseeism was about house cleaning for God. It was about keeping undesirables away from God and away from themselves. God saved Paul out of that. God save us. Because I wonder if we can see our own reflection in those same windows the Pharisees before us tried so hard to keep clean. You know, it, it, the problem with the Pharisees was, wasn't that they were legalists, they were. The problem was they missed their Messiah. And they were the very people who were looking for him. And they missed him. God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. And we're worried sick over our religious liberties. We're scared to death the socialists are going to come in and smudge our windows. Or worse, break them. And you look, I don't want to lose liberties. I'd be the last person to want to lose liberties. But I cannot say that I want to be a biblical Christian and refuse what God ties his glory to, which is redemptive suffering. I mean, look at verse 13. I ask you, verse 13, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. My suffering is your glory. What does that mean? The suffering of the church always open up avenues. For the glory of God to advance and to spread and to permeate through his gospel. We resist that to our peril. A gospel that sustains our wonder will be bigger than our worries and fears. It will be. It has to be. If you lead all the time with worries and fears and people know you as the person who's worried and afraid, come back to your first love. 
Gospel that sustains our wonder, it has to be bigger than our worries and fears. It, it has to be bigger than competing gospels. And there's a lot of competing gospels out there, including gospels of sin management, you know, where we make these little deals with God. Well, if you'll just do this, I promise I won't do that anymore. You know? And prosperity gospels that we buy into, which are all about keeping us healthy and safe and warm and happy. And nothing bad ever happens to my kids or to me. It's a prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. The gospel sustains our wonder in giving us Jesus for us. That in Christ, we're given something bigger to dwell on, someone who will not fail. He's bigger than anything that's going on in the country or in the world. And yet he has pulled near to us and pulls us near to him. That's how the gospel sustains our wonder. It's not something you work up a feeling toward. It's about reestablishing your sight lines. Lord, help me look through this window, not at it. Second takeaway from this passage is how the church displays God's wisdom. Introducing the idea at the beginning of the sermon, I told you that wisdom is about becoming what we know. So wisdom has the quality of being lived in. If it's just knowledge, if you don't live into it, it never becomes wisdom. And so wisdom, sometimes it's referred to as skill in living. You've heard that definition probably in wisdom literature when uh, preachers like me are talking about Proverbs and all, but that's, that's the difference. I mean, the scriptures talk about knowledge and the scriptures talk about understanding and the scriptures talk about insight. We have insight here in verse four. But wisdom is, is living into becoming what we know. Now look again at verse 10 where we have the word wisdom. Verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And the cosmology of the Bible, you've got the seen things and you've got unseen things. And unseen things uh, basically... Uh, categorized into angels and demons, demons being Satan's realm. Sometimes they're called principalities and powers. In fact, if you want to look over real quick, chapter six, we'll come back to this idea that we've got here in chapter three, verse 10 of rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Chapter six, verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now here in chapter three, verse 10, Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places seems to be everybody, angels as well as demons. But because we know where chapter 6 is going, let's take a moment to look at it from the vantage point of what could God possibly be doing in showing his manifold wisdom to cosmic powers, let's think about the ones that are evil, Satan and his horde, through the church. What role, what teaching role does the church have to Satan and those who serve him? This is our second takeaway, how the church displays God's wisdom. If wisdom is becoming what we know of the gospel that God has revealed in Christ, there's something about our becoming that is the undoing of rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that are opposed to God. Let's just look at it from that angle. And to do so, let me cross-reference this back to Job. You remember I spoke of uh, Job, or uh, went through Job back last summer. Last summer we did a little series in Job. And it struck me the other day, reading Job again, 
And working in this Ephesian passage, my Bible calendar reading has me in Job right now. It, it struck me as I was reading Job and thinking about Ephesians 3, I had this thought that what God was doing, every, whatever else you think about Job, what God was doing through Job was demonstrating a wisdom to Satan that Satan, of course, rejects. It's similar to verse 10 here. So let me use Job as an illustration of the church. Verse 10 tells us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, which includes those that are opposed to God, principalities and powers as we think of them also. The wisdom of God, look at, and, and let's look at this through the prism of Job. Made familiar with Job last summer. Job is a, is a familiar figure in scripture, unless you're my downline friend and go back and look at him. Let's look at this through uh, the Job prism. What's the wisdom that God displayed to Satan through Job back in the Old Testament? It's this, a human being who loves me for me, God's saying, will continue to trust God even when every human benefit for doing so is stripped away. That's the wisdom, God's wisdom made manifold through Job. Manifold is the idea of a tapestry. It's something on display. It's beautiful. So this idea of manifold wisdom of God in verse 10, it's like a tapestry where you take these uh, pictures or you take these uh, threads uh, and, and colors and you, and you weave them all together and you hang a tapestry. A lot of tapestries make museums depending on who does them, but they, they draw you in. They tell a story. A lot of tapestries do. The church is a tapestry. Job was a tapestry before us in that through Job, God said to Satan, I'm going to show you how a human being will continue to trust me when every human benefit for doing so is stripped away from him. According to verse 10 here, the reason I bring up Job is that the church is a kind of Job through whom God proves to those most opposed to him that he matters to us more than anything else. And the wonder of how wisdom like this works, I mean, look at who God works this through. What is the church? Former pagan Gentiles. The church is former persecutors of the church like Paul. The church is people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who've done everything under the sun and yet been forgiven. And God calls us to love him for himself because of Christ and the church does. The church does that. And that's how God displays his wisdom cosmically. He looks at all the powers opposed to him and says, watch what the church does. Even when there's no human incentive for following me in a tough place, they'll keep following me. Despite all evidence to the contrary, our faults, our loves out of order, our, our being putty at times, willing to have Satan play us. He can do his worst to us and we're still in on God's best to us in Christ. Remember how God said to Satan back in Job, hey Satan, have you, uh, have you noticed my servant Job that there's nobody like him on the earth? We're now Job. As I take verse 10, thinking of Job as, an, as a biblical example to run this through, it's as if God is saying to Satan today, have you seen my church? Now, see, we think, because we get down on ourselves real easy, 
that God would say to Satan, have you seen my church? Looks like you're winning, you know. But it's not like that at all. And who's the difference maker? Jesus, not us, Jesus. Because of Jesus being our advocate, this is pretty cool how this works out. It's God says to Satan, have you seen my church? There's no one like them on the earth. There's nobody else on earth who will continue to trust and believe and walk with me, even when they have no creature comforts, no no reward for their faithfulness in their society, even when they're misunderstood or ignored or marginalized or persecuted in some places, even though the world gives them nothing of value for their faith, they still follow me. And that's because of Jesus. And so every day, do you know what every day the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places have to watch? They have to watch millions of people submit themselves to Jesus Christ. Every day, they have to listen to the soaring praises of the saints of God, many of whom singing through tears, but sing we do. God chooses to display his wisdom through calling a people to become what we know of him But there's no becoming of us until he first remakes us. Unless we're first made fellow heirs, unless we're first made members of the same body. I'm looking at verse 6. Unless we're made partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Partaker is a word of communion. So this segues us beautifully right into communion. Partaker, verse 6. We have been made partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Partakers is a communion word. Meaning what? When you partake of the bread and the cup, what you're doing is you're confessing your faith. And you're confessing your faith in the visible realm of people right around you who see you, know that you're taking communion with us. But you're also confessing your faith to an invisible realm that the unsearchable riches of Christ are yours, not because you've, you've you grasped at it or claimed it for yourself illegitimately, but because of grace. You are a child of grace. And when you take communion elements, you are saying to those powers, it's not about me having to clean myself up. The Lord has cleaned me. And the Lord has given himself to me. And so in taking communion, you know what we're doing when we take communion? We're saying, I'm going to give myself back again and again to the one who gave himself for me. That's what makes communion such a a high and holy act. It's, It's not that we enter some realm of consideration of ourselves where we kind of get somewhat down on ourselves. And it's about that we're so up with Jesus, that he has lifted us and he's given us his body and his blood. And so on the night he was betrayed, if you've got your communion elements, the little membrane on top is what you peel back first to reveal the little wafer. And on the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to the cross and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you for us to come into all the blessings that are ours in Christ. And he said, as you eat this, remember me. At the same meal, in the next breath, he took a cup. And he gave thanks for the cup. 
consider that. He gave thanks for what he was about to endure. Even though he would struggle with it in the garden, we know, he gave thanks. Gave thanks for the provision of God that was he himself. And then he talked to his disciples about covenant. Now they knew what covenant was. And they thought of covenant in terms of, yeah, you give to God and God gives to you. And Jesus says, no, it's a new covenant. And being a new covenant means I do and you get blessed in my doing. You're blessed through the obedience of my life. You're blessed through the substitution of my death in your place. You're blessed because I will live, I will outlive this. And he said, as often as you drink this, you do so in remembrance of me. And it says they sung a hymn. So let's stand and do that together now.